Good morning. This morning we're going to continue and actually conclude our uh, sermon series for the last couple months on the first opening chapters of 1 Samuel. We've been looking at the stories, individual stories of Hannah and Eli and Samuel, but also the last few weeks, the, the national stories of Israel and the Philistines, all around this theme of remembering that God sees differently than us, that God sees our hearts. Humans only see the outward appearance, but God sees to the heart. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at what's called the Ark narrative, the three chapters in a row about this journey of the Ark of God. And so today is the last of those three parts. And just so we'll get to, I'll remind you of those in just a moment, don't worry, <laughs> what those are. But this is the third and last part, <clears throat> which we see the ark go into captivity and the ark come back out. But as a way to start, I want to mention I read an article recently that mentioned the angle of repose. The angle of repose. Now you, out there, you engineers or mathematicians, if I get this wrong, you know, tell me later. Um, but the author, at least I'll blame it on this person who wrote about it, talked about the angle of repose as the, the steepest slope in which something will still come to rest upon it. If you can picture a pile of dirt, if you take a shovel of dirt, you know, filled with dirt, you throw on top of the pile, it's the slope in which the dirt will eventually stop on the side of the pile. So if you can picture somewhere, a slope between zero degrees and 90 degrees, zero being flat and 90 being a right angle, there's a slope in which things will come to a rest at some point there. The author, what I can take his word for it, says that dirt, depending on the nature of the dirt, will stop somewhere in a slope of 38 degrees to 45 degrees. I'm not sure why he picked these, but ashes will stop at a 45-degree angle, wheat, 27 degrees, and snow, 38 degrees. If you can picture, right, these different angles in which things will come to a rest there. And part of the reason this stood out to me is because the author used it as a metaphor also for our life that we long to find the slope or the angle, if you will, in which we might find some contentment or rest. And if you're like me, then you know that there's many times, maybe even right now for you, that the angle of your life, the slope of your life, doesn't feel like one in which things will come to a rest, but it feels too steep, too pitched, too great, in which things, nothing seems to be at rest. Things keep moving. Things won't settle in one space. We can picture that angle, that idea. We can ask, what do we do in those moments when the angle of our life seems to be out of balance, seems in which nothing will be the way we want it to be, peace and rest? And one way that the Scripture speaks to that, one way our faith speaks to that, is that in those moments we need to hear stories of God. Stories about the nature of our God. Stories that are apart from us, that relate to us, of sure, but are not based in you or my resources. Of course, such stories don't change our circumstances. Such stories don't immediately change even our struggles or what's happening inside of us. But it is stories of God that invite us maybe to a new orientation, to even find a balance, to find the possibility of assurance or hope even when things won't be at rest. And I invite you to think about that angle of things sliding down or coming to a rest as a way to enter into the significance of our story. I mentioned it is a three-part story in, in which the ark of God 
leaves Israel and goes into captivity in Philistine, the Philistines. But then we see it come back out of captivity in victory. And for us, a way to enter into this story, it's helpful to kind of take a moment to ask some questions because it is a story that can feel strange to us. I mentioned this the last couple weeks, that sometimes we come to passages that we feel our distance, we feel our distance to the passage. And this arc narrative can be one of those times. But I think if we hear it, it can be one that speaks to our hearts. First of all, what is the ark? Why is the journey of the ark so significant? Well, the ark, in the short answer, represented God. The ark was this box covered in gold, and it was significant because of what it had inside of it. It had the Ten Commandments given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It had the bread of heaven, manna, that fed the people in the wilderness. It had the staff of Aaron. All these things testifying, remembering that God did not leave his people in slavery, but brought them out and entered into covenant with them to lead them into the land of, of their own. The ark not only testified to what God had done, but the ark, in a special way, represented God's presence with the people. The top of the ark was called the mercy seat or the place of atonement. And this was the place that the holy God, the holy God didn't just give information to his people, but would dwell with them in a special way. And so the ark is not God, but the ark represented God. And the three parts of the story, the three parts of the ark's journey, was one, first, captivity. Two weeks ago, we looked at this. The Israelites were struggling under the military force of the Philistines, so they think, hey, we'll bring the ark from the temple, we'll bring the ark to the battlefield, and it will help us. But things go terribly wrong. They lose the battle, and the ark is taken into exile, into captivity by the Philistines. But then last week, the second part of the journey, we see in a mysterious way at night, they all know that although the ark has been set in the temple of the Philistines' god named Dagon, then in the night, the people come and they find the next morning that Dagon, the, the idol of Dagon, has fallen down, face down in front of the ark. And more than that, the head and the hands of Dagon have been broken off. That literally God in the night has disarmed the Philistine god. More things happen but to the point where they want to get rid <laughs> of the ark. The ark overcomes what's holding it. And it makes its way through the different cities of the Philistines. And we come into our part of our journey today in which it goes home to Israel. The one that has been captured has overcome, and now it goes home. And all those things were reminded of the Exodus, and we're look ahead to Jesus. And we're reminded in the midst of our own pressures and stress and uncertainties and our sin that our God is the one who enters into exile for us. Our God is the one who enters into captivity for us. But our God is the one who cannot be held, will break forth from all those things that seek to hold it, and our God is the one who will come home to dwell with his people forever. So let's hear our passage. This is 1 Samuel chapter 6 and in the beginning of chapter 7. and allows us to begin to think about who our God is and how it speaks into our life. You can follow in your order of worship or in your Bible. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. 
but by all means return him a gift, guilt offering. Then you will be healed and you will be known, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and all your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and the images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from, from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaohs hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the Lord of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. They split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day of the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. The men of Kirath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day of that, that the ark was lodged at Kirath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baal and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word and we ask for your help in hearing it and understanding it. And Lord, I pray that by your word and spirit that you would speak into our hearts that we may find hope and rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I said, so this is the, the final part of the journey of the ark. And what I want us to do this morning is kind of have three parts. Well, first, we spend time looking at this narrative and uh, trying to kind of make sense of this strange events that happened in the Philistines and Israel. And then there's two parts. I want us to think about God's homecoming. 
in our, in our response. God's homecoming and the response of the people. So let's just start with what's happening in our passage, this, this third and final part of this journey. And we can start by asking the Philistine question, what shall we do with the ark? What shall we do with it? This is the question asked by the Philistines. Israelites' difficult neighbor to the west kept causing problems for the Israelites. And they've held the ark of God for seven months. They took it in battle. They paraded it home in celebration. They placed it in their temple as a trophy of victory and power. As I said earlier, they set it beside Dagon, their god, beside like a servant in someone's home. But something changed. On the third day, they woke up to find Dagon laying on the ground from the ark with his head and hands cut off. In the quiet of the night, the Philistines' god has been disarmed. And they do not even try to reposition Dagon at this point on the third day. They do not try to put him back up on the shelf in the temple. It's beyond restoration. And they say, the ark must not remain with us, for the hand of God is heavy on us and on our God. And if you were here last week, you might remember that what happens is that there's kind of this parade that goes from town to town in Philistia. They send the ark from one city to the next, city after city, to Ashdod, to Gath, to Ekron. And all of them are saying, send it away. We do not want it. We cannot hold it. No Philistine temple, no Philistine city can hold the ark of God. And like the plagues that happened in Egypt when the Israelites were in slavery there, moving Pharaoh to release them and send them away, so now God has brought plagues on the land of the Philistines. A plague of tumors, a plague of mice that would ravish the land. The exile, the captivity, the humiliation of the Lord, all of which were brought upon him as he entered into the exile and the defeat of his people. The ark going into captivity was God embracing the captivity of his people. It now turns into a victory procession from city to city in this foreign land as the ark makes its way back home. And one of the key parts that we'll see as we think through this story is that over and over again we're told or made clear that God is acting apart from the Israelites. God is acting apart from the strength and resources of his people. That he has entered into their captivity, but by his power, he will free himself from what holds him. He will free himself from what holds him that he may go home in glory. What are we to do with the ark? Well, we can imagine kind of like a cabinet meeting. The leaders ask their advisors, what do we do with this thing? How do we get rid of it? And the priests give two thoughts. Well, you should create a way for the ark to journey home, and you should send it with gifts. <laughs> Don't send it home by itself. You should send some gold to try to make this all work out okay, right? That always kind of covers over things, right? Sending a lot of gold. But the idea being here is that the priests say, look, remember, we know the story of this God, and we know what happened in Egypt. So don't be like Pharaoh who hardened his heart. Don't be like the people of Egypt who hardened their heart trying to hold that which they could not hold but rather release these things. And as a way to acknowledge the glory of God, a way to acknowledge that we cannot hold this God, that God will not sit beside us or our God, then give these gifts and let them be images of what God has done. 
Strangely, these, if you can picture golden mice and golden tumors that speak of God's power in the land. It's a way of saying, let's acknowledge the Lord, the God of Israel. So the Philistines are ready to send the ark away, ready to give gifts if it means an end to the plagues that have come upon them since they've captured the ark. But even with this fear and even with this advice from the priests, the way our passage is written, there is this kind of nod towards maybe a compromise, a nod towards an experiment. Maybe there is a way that we could keep the ark or maybe a way to keep our gold. It's a strange passage, like I said, but if you can follow along, they present a plan. A plan that leans towards, that leans towards them keeping their treasure. Build a new cart and find unyoked milk cows. Cows that are not used to pulling a cart. More than that, cows that have calves that depend upon them. So find cows in which all their instincts would be to stay where they are to not pull the cart anywhere new, but to stay where their calves are, to stay where their home is. Now set that up and watch. If the ark makes its way to Israel, then we know that God has been the one who's done this work. But if the cows stay where they are, if the the cart stays where it is, then these things have just happened by coincidence, and we can keep them. So the leaders follow the advice. They gather the gold. They place it on the cart with the ark, The wagon is attached to two milk cows who must decide to desert their calves. And if we're invited in all this, if we can try to picture the scene in our mind, that these leaders, the the, the high-ranking authorities and all of their cabinet members are standing there all around watching this wagon with milk cows attached to it. Which way will it go? A few steps, a few steps, and it becomes clear that against all their instincts, against all that would be leaning in a certain direction, the cows are not lingering in their land or with their calves. As one author writes, they seem to have a higher calling. These milk cows have a place to go. Contrary to nature, contrary to how the experiment was set up, the cows make no attempt to stay or to return to the calves, but go to Beth Shemesh, which was the village closest to the, the Israeli village closest to the border of the Philistines. And as it enters the valley, it comes upon the people who are busy reaping the wheat harvest. And our passage says, they look up and they are surprised and astounded and they rejoice. There is the ark of God. Seven months ago, captured in battle, and now it's being led home only by two Philistine cows. This is the story that we're given. And we can ask, what does it tell us about our God? Well, the story is wanting us, as I said, to think about God's homecoming. That God has been in captivity, that God has been in exile, but now God is coming home, that God is bringing home the ark. I hope I made it clear, did you see the lengths the passage goes to stress that the Lord has overcome that which holds him? Set beside Dagon in the temple, a trophy of victory of the Philistines, he breaks down that God. Move from one city to the next in, the, in Philistia. No city will keep it anymore because of the plagues that have come upon the land. Even set upon a, an, a wagon in which everything was set up for the wagon to stay still or to go in the opposite direction, now the ark makes its way home. Everything being set up 
saying that the Lord is not dependent upon anyone. That while the Lord will go into exile for his people, will go into captivity and into the humiliation of his people, it is not based on his people that he will come home. It is based on the Lord's power to break his captivity. In the midst of the many details, we don't want to miss the overall movement. The Lord, through his power, through his agency, has returned home. And invites us to think for a moment, where does the ark of God, where does God go when he returns home? Where does he go? He goes to the land of Israel. He returns to a people who in the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel are described and marked by corruption, confusion, manipulation, sorrow, grief, and loss. The holy God, the creator of all things, is saying that the home of his presence is with his people. The home of the ark is with those that he has chosen The actions of God affirm God's greatness, that nothing can hold God, but it also affirms that God is the God of Israel, the God of the covenant who dwells with his people. And this return of the ark into the land by God's power, it's brought up, picked up again in Ezekiel many years later by the prophet Ezekiel, saying he had a vision, I saw the glory of God, of Israel coming from the east. His voice, his presence was like the roar of rushing water and the land was radiant with his glory. And the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And the Lord pronounced with a roaring voice, I will reside with my people Israel forever. I will reside among them forever. I will dwell in their midst. And when the Lord, when Yahweh when he shows again his glory and his power and his majesty after exile, he's affirming that not only is he God, but he's our God. Ezekiel goes on to say that the name of the city, the dwelling place, will be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. God's captivity, his overcoming that which holds him, and his return home, all of these things point to, foreshadow Jesus, our Savior. The one who enters into our death, the night of our sin. The one who overcomes all our enemies. Nothing can hold him such that Jesus himself will walk out of the tomb. On the third day, he walks out of the tomb in glory, securing life not only for himself, but for all who are united to him. In glory, he returns to his disciples, those who have betrayed him, affirming again that they belong to him. Last Lent, we had an art show in our church office by an artist named Scott Erickson. I follow Scott Erickson on Instagram through that connection, and I came across an image recently that he had posted. I'm not sure when he did this particular liturgical art, but the image has this, it's all in a kind of uh, like a vanilla background with a dark bluish black, and there is a shark in the middle of the image, a large shark. And around the shark are kind of the, the rippling of the waves of the water. But in the shark's mouth, you can see a human arm sticking out of the mouth. The, the rest of the, the person has been swallowed, but the arm is still sticking out. 
And in that arm, at the end in his hand, is a, a flag, holding a kind of a long, narrow flag that's kind of the length of the shark. And on it, the flag says, I am more than my circumstances. <laughs> I am more than my circumstances. And I don't know how that strikes you, but when I saw it, it resonated with me. Maybe you can feel times where things are swallowing you up or things seem a little bit out of control, things broken within you or around you. But it is a powerful thing that I think resonates with most people. I am more than my circumstances. And what this story does of the ark, and especially when it's connected to Christ and his death and resurrection, is it tells us as Christians that that is true. It is a profound truth that you do not belong to your circumstances. That you do not belong even to today. But that God has entered into your life, entered into the depths of your brokenness and your sin, entered into your woundedness and your sorrows, gone into exile, and in death faced all the things that would seek to hold him, hold us, but has overcome those things. And not only that, then has walked out of the grave and returned to his people, saying, this is my place in which I dwell. And all those who are united to Christ share their sorrows with him, but also share in his victory. All those who are united with Christ hear the promise that God dwells in you. That by his spirit, God dwells in you. And if we are in Christ, nothing can separate us from him. We do not belong ultimately to our circumstances, do not belong ultimately to those things that bring us sorrow. For God dwells with you. This is the good news of God's homecoming. Our faith doesn't invite us to some kind of triumph in which we say that nothing matters or that we can overcome everything. Our faith rather invites us into the power of God apart from us. God entering our captivity, God facing our enemies, Jesus overcoming all that would hold us. One entering into the cross that comes out in glory with wounded hands on our behalf. So this passage is not a chance for us just to be victorious and forget about our sorrows, but rather to find God in the midst of them, remembering that the one who holds us will not let us go. And therefore, what's the response that we have? Well, the response that we see in our passage is that there is an immediate worship, a sacrifice, a giving thanks to what has happened by God. And sensing what's happening, Samuel, the leader of God's people, takes this opportunity to call everyone together to a place called Mizpah, which means watchtower. He calls the tribes together to a, a landmark that could see over the, the, the valleys, over the land. It was a significant place militarily, but it was also symbolic, saying, come to the place in which we have seen, in which we see anew. We see our God and our God for us. Do you see what has happened? And this call to repentance, the call to confess their sins, is a chance for us to think that sin in many ways is about not knowing who we are. Sin in your life is about forgetting, rebelling against, or not knowing who you are. God has acted on behalf of his people that they might know again who they are. In Mitzpah, they draw water and they pour it on the ground as a symbol of their washing, of being made new. 
the journey of the ark affirming that God has the right and the power to grant them forgiveness and new life. So it is not just that you are more than your circumstances, but that God offers a new start to you today. The one who has seen your sorrows and your sin, who's entered into them and invited you to repent, to find a new orientation, a new balance, a new hope, a new starting point with him. I invite you to think about doing so this morning, not to say I'll never have these problems or I'm just going to overcome them, but rather to remember the God who acted for you, the God who has united himself to you in Christ, and the God who tells you who you are. Let God's story be one that we meditate upon. Let his story tell us our story. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you, Lord, that you are good and gracious to us. Thank you that you're a God that's not only glorious, but one that enters into the depths of our exile and sin and captivity to bring new words of hope and life. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.